Welcome to I Am My Passion Project, a companion of my digital magazine, Badass Silver Streak. I'm Lorna Nickel. I'm an artist, writer, graphic designer, thinker, a renaissance woman, if you will. This podcast is a way for me to give a voice to women over 50, like myself, a platform to discuss sexism, health and wellness, redefining beauty, and healing from betrayal trauma. Without further ado, let's dig in together and figure out ways to resist societal expectations while reimagining a world where mature women are made visible and empowered to become their own passion projects. Let's do this. This is your trigger warning. This episode contains mature content and sexual information that some people might find triggering. Please be conscious of playing this episode if you have children in listening range. Hello again. I know I said episode 10 was the last episode of the season, but sometimes amazing opportunities come to you when you least expect it. During my research into the harms of pornography, I came across this incredibly knowledgeable speaker who gave a TED Talk on YouTube. One of the things she addressed was the vulnerability of children to hypersexualization and pornography in the media and online. The speaker was Dr. Gail Dines. I reached out to her to see if she would be interested in being a guest on my podcast, knowing this was a long shot because she is such a leading figure in this kind of activist work. But many weeks later, I got a response and it was yes. So here we are with a bonus episode. Dr. Gail Dines, Professor Emerita of Sociology, has been researching and writing about the porn industry for well over 30 years. She is a recipient of the Myers Center Award for the Study of Human Rights in North America and author of numerous books and articles. Her latest book, Pornland, How Porn Has Hijacked Our Sexuality, has been translated into five languages. Dr. Dines is the founding president and CEO of the nonprofit Culture Reframed dedicated to building resilience and resistance in children and youth to the harms of a hypersexualized and pornified society. Culture Reframed develops cutting-edge educational programs that promote healthy development, relationships, and sexuality. Dr. Dines has worked with organizations such as the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Center for Disease Control, the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals, as well as government bodies in the U.S., Brazil, U.K., Sweden, Iceland, Norway, and Canada. She regularly appears on CNN, NPR, BBC, CBC, and writes for media outlets such as The Guardian, The Washington Post, Newsweek, and the Boston Globe. So I am in the podcasting studio with Dr. Gail Dines, and I'm so excited to have you on my podcast with me. And honestly, like I, I'm a big fan of yours, and I never thought that I would actually get you on my podcast to talk about this topic. So it's great for me. Thank you. When talking about the porn industry, we often focus on mostly men who consume porn. And um, we talk about porn and sex addiction where, again, we mostly focus on men and the harms to men and how they can recover from it. We even talk about the harms to women in the porn industry, which are real and devastating. But we don't often talk about the harms to the culture as a whole, to hypersexualization and porn, 
or specifically about girls and women who grow up in our patriarchal society where porn is just supposed to be considered an accepted norm. For this episode, I want to talk about how children, women in their prime dating years, and older women are affected by the porn industry. So before we dive into that, I haven't heard from you what brought you to this work. And so I just kind of wanted to see if you could touch on that a little bit. Well, it's interesting in a way that this work got me. I was um, doing my PhD. I was tender age of 22, quite a number of years ago. And somebody said to me, there's a feminist anti-porn show in town. Do you want to come? And I thought, why not? You know, and I, I had been working and doing some research also at the Rape Crisis Centre on the, the causes of rape. And I was noticing in the police reports that pornography was coming up a lot, that when they would go to a rapist's house, they would see a lot of porn. So it was already beginning to sort of trickle down into what's going on here. And I was actually doing my PhD, my thesis on gender equality in education. So I'll go and see the show that night and I had no idea my life was going to change. I had no idea. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Now, bear in mind, this was over 30 years ago. So what I was seeing is nothing like you get for free in 10 seconds today. It was so much more soft core. But I I was so appalled and shocked that men made this and other men found it arousing. Right. And it's interesting because I say it was a crossroads in my life. I was newly married. And I went home and my husband was there. I said, you're not going to believe what I've seen tonight. I can't explain it. I was just so shaken. And we sat down and we spoke most of the evening. And I said to him, I can't walk away from this. I'm going to change my dissertation. And I'm going to do it on the sociology of pornography. Now, that night, if he would have said to me, don't be a prude, it's no big deal. What would I have done at 22, newly married? Would I have had the courage to walk away from him? Because I would have had to, because I couldn't have had this life and live with a man who doesn't agree with me. What his response was, oh, my God, no, I don't believe you. No, nobody looks at that. I mean, he'd never seen porn. And, And he is, let me tell you, after 40 years of marriage, this man has been by my side, supporting me in front of me when he needs to be and behind me when he needs to be. I mean, I couldn't have done this without him. Wow. And so I called my PhD thesis advisor and I said, I'm changing my topic to the sociology of pornography. And I think I wrote the first ever PhD in the UK in pornography. I mean, I live in Boston, Massachusetts now and have for many years. But at that time I was doing my PhD in Hmm. England. And then I went on to become assistant professor, associate professor, full professor. And my entire academic life has been given over to this and activist life, because it's not enough to know this stuff. You have to get out and tell people. And believe me, no one has known about this. I've been doing this for 30 odd years, and it's only the last five years that it has got on the sort of the cultural map that we're in a public health crisis with pornography. So that said, it got me. I mean, I can't, I can't unsee what I've seen. I can't unknow what I know. So either I sit with it and go crazy, or I do the work I do, which is run culture reframed. If anyone's interested, that's culturereframed.org. You can find it. It's an organization dedicated to building resilience and resistance in kids to pornography, because we want to get to the kids before the porn industry does. And also, we our goal is to stop the social, emotional, cognitive and sexual harms of pornography 
on children. So that's our organization has been going now for about six, seven years. We are we work internationally because we're the only anti-porn organization run by credentialed people. If you're gonna fight this fight, you better make sure you have a PhD, FDNA, or an MD or some certificate, because it doesn't matter what you say. If you are not credentialed, they're not going to listen to you because it's such a controversial subject. So I could say anything I say, but if I didn't have this doctor before my name, it wouldn't be heard the same way. So um, we are the only science-based organisation. We are not faith-based at all. Um, And we work with, as I said, international child safeguarding, child protection. I've uh, lectured for the American Academy of Pediatrics, for the CDC. governments from Norway, Brazil, to Sweden, to the UK, to France. I've been consultants for and on a number of law cases. So we're being heard now. Now is our time to be heard because the porn industry has hijacked the discourse around sexuality and it's turned it into a pornographic vehicle. What we need to do is reclaim our sexuality away from the porn industry because porn is not just about sex. Porn is a narrative about women, about men, about gender inequality, about the role of women in general, who are, by the way, in porn, just disposable fuck objects and exist for no other reason. Now, just think how that affects women. If you are seen by the majority of men who do use porn, we know that from studies, as a disposable fuck object, you don't give a disposable fuck object equal pay. You don't give them good health care. You don't give them good um, access to housing, to health care, all those things that you need. You're just a disposable fuck object. So the result is no wonder women are the underfed, poorest of the world, because we don't exist to be seen as human beings. We are, And it's not only the porn industry who does this. Remember, the wider society says the same thing. What the porn industry does different to anywhere else, is it delivers that message in the most succinct and crisp way possible. And it delivers it to men's brains via the penis, which is an extremely um, well-equipped delivery system. No other form of propaganda provides the propaganda with a full-on body thud, which is arousal and orgasm. So this is gets cemented in men's brains. And remember, men run the world. They still decide how women live and how women die. So we are in real trouble, and so are our girls. And by the way, our boys are in real trouble. We have to remember this. We're going over a cliff with this if we don't do something now, because the study after study after study shows the enormous social, emotional, and cognitive harms to boys and now to girls on a number of levels. Yeah, and I definitely have seen that as, you know, being married to a man who is in recovery from sex and porn addiction. And I'm fully aware that one of the hardest things for these men to have to deal with when they are trying to recover is dealing with the residual effects of objectification and sexualization. That is like the deep-seated poison that pornography uses for, uh, you know, in these men and sends them out in the world where they are. They've seen all of this stuff online. They've seen, uh, you know, all of these different genres and subgenres that, you know, of porn that we don't necessarily have to get into detail to 
because it's they're so appalling to me thinking about the things that they've seen. But the imagery and the objectification is deep seated in them in the way that they can't separate what they've seen and how they think about women in the porn industry from the real world. And so the intrusive thoughts and the, um, you know, the continued intrusive thoughts, and then the triggers, seeing all the women out in the world is another way that just kind of links them back. And it's really, really hard to break that chain. So even if they aren't acting out anymore in the real world, they're still having these thoughts about women. And that, as you've mentioned, affects the way they see women in the workplace. They see women out in the world, how they think that they can treat them in all of these different places. And that that is a really frustrating thing for me too, as a partner. So since I wanted to talk about the women, like as a partner who's with somebody who's in recovery, the impact on me is that I have a really, really low self-esteem because of that. Like I was married 21 years before I found out that my husband was a sex and porn addict and was feeling fine, was like, you know, I'm 52. I was thought I was in a marriage where I was aging, you know, if in a fine way, I, you know, health was good. I was exercising and feeling like I was safe in my marriage. And then when I realized what was happening and all of the stuff that my husband had been looking at, and then the noticing that even in his recovery, because it's been a little over a year now that he still has residual effects from the porn industry, that just takes such, um, it's it bashes you, like the women who are trying to recover themselves in all of these different places in the self-esteem in comparing ourselves to others the objectifying ourselves in there're just so many different ways that we take on the brunt totally i mean and this is not talked about but there are some studies we know for example that women who are married to porn addicts I and mean, i'm talking porn addicts now not necessarily sex addicts porn addicts feel more betrayed by finding out their husband was using porn than they do this, than if he had an affair. And the shock, the, I mean, I speak to many, many women who've had this happen to them. The shock that you thought you were living one world, and in fact, it was all a lie. He had been, you know, going to these violent images. And it's it, porn is not just poison, it's ideological. It is feeding him a constant drip, drip, drip of ideology about women. And I don't think, I think you should pat yourself on your back for getting out of bed every morning. I don't see any reason for you to have low self-esteem, right? You have survived this. You're not in recovery from porn. You're in recovery from being traumatized. Finding something right. that is extremely traumatizing. Here you are doing a podcast, helping other women. So I think you should really, your esteem should go right up, given how you're managing this. Because I've met many women who, even after a year or two, still, I mean, many of them divorce. And if you think you should divorce, and I'm not talking to you now, I'm talking to the listeners. Mm -hmm. That is something I would recommend. If you think there's no hope or you just cannot live with this knowledge, then you should. And I do understand that if there's children involved and mortgages, it's not easy. But... You know, the question you have to ask yourself and women have to ask themselves is, you know, who does he see when he looks at me? What does he see? Right. 
right? And and then, of course, what happens... Now, I have to tell you something. I know this because this happens to me. I've got the brain of a porn user. I do not get aroused to it. I hate it. I certainly don't masturbate to it, right? I loathe it. And yet I got to check myself all the time. We'll be out, my husband and I, and I'll see an image, and I'll say, oh, look at that. And and he goes, oh, God, you and your porn brain. He hasn't got one. I've got one. So I know what it's like. I have to fight. You know, you go to the supermarket and you look at certain fruit and you've already got the scene playing out from what you've seen, the choreography. So I know it and I know that I don't get the full... The only thing I get when I watch it is a feeling often of um, sadness, despair, anger, rage, no arousal, but they get the arousal and the orgasm. So, I mean, those of us who do this work, we have a support group because we realise our, our brains on some level are turned by seeing we have mm-hmm. to fight it. And we're all, most of us are feminists. So we're especially, you know, so kind of whiplashed by how it, this is fed into our brains. Um, I worked with um, and wrote books with a great colleague and friend, Robert Jensen, for many years. And if people haven't read his work, I definitely suggest you read Bob Jensen, Robert Jensen's work. And he in the end had to give up. He couldn't do it because as a man, he was so disgusted by his feelings of arousal towards porn. And he had exactly the same views as me. I mean, we worked together in developing these theories. He, he after 20 years, he walked away from this. He just couldn't do it. Yeah. And I'm so glad that my husband has never seen porn because there's one, one person with a porn brain in the family is one too many. So all I need is to be right. as well. And he actually hates me looking at it. And I just want to give an idea of what romance is like in our house. It was, <laughs> it was a Sunday morning and I was being interviewed by a radio and it was on um, incest porn. And I had to go on Pornhub oh. and just look up all the categories. I didn't need to look at the images, mm-hmm. but of course, when you go on Pornhub, the images just come at you. And I was complaining to him at breakfast and I said, I've got to go on Pornhub. He says, oh, no, you don't do yes. I said, yes. I have to look at just some categories and numbers and check. So then I go away and I come back and I come onto my computer and he's made a whole card where it's cut out. So all I see are the categories and I don't have to look at any of the images. Oh. And I thought, forget chocolates, forget roses. This is, this is love, you know? <laughs> that really is so he's love. He's protecting me from the images. Because, uh, and as I say, you know, doing this work and having people around you who support you is crucial. But let's talk about the women and girls. What we know from studies is that, first of all, what happens to the boys and the men has a domino effect to the girls in a number of ways. First of all, the boys, the major form of sex education is pornography. That's where they learn what sex is, how to do sex. And really, when you go into Pornhub, you're not looking at sex. You're looking at sexual torture. I don't know if people out mm-hmm. there know that, but there's no such thing as softcore anymore. All, all the major free porn sites, are really, if you did it to any other group other than women, it would be defined as torture and would go against the International Treaty on Torture. So this is what the boys and men get to in five seconds for free. And what happens is they, because they encode the images into their body and into their sexual template, when they're actually, and the average age of first viewing porn is between eight to 11. And by the way, I've dealt with therapists who have porn addicts as young as 11, right? Think about that. Think about their life. So um, what happens is a couple of things. First of all, 
um, the boys want and men want that type of sex. We know, for example, from a recent study that when they asked incoming college students, women, incoming, they asked them, How, have you been strangled? Have you ever been strangled enjoying so-called sex, right? They asked them during sex. And they asked them about their last sexual encounter, not over the lifetime, their last sexual encounter. And the number was one in three had been strangled. One in three. Wow. And that's straight out of porn. You don't wait, you don't come to that on yeah. your own, right? And also studies find that the guys um ejaculate on women's faces without asking. Now, what we also know is that there is an increasing number of girls and women who go on porn sites. Very few tend to go on to masturbate. What we found in studies is that they go on to watch what the guys are watching so they know how to perform porn sex. Now, the ones who do tend to go on to masturbate have got more likely to have a history of sexual abuse as a child and then playing out their their trauma. Um, but now there is a growing number of girls who have got not have got no history of sexual abuse are actually going on to use porn like the boys do. And what do we find? They have exactly the same effects. They lose interest in sex. They get addicted to pornography. Their sexual templates are found, found, uh, around porn. The only difference, and this is a major difference, is they do not increase in their sexual harassment or potential rape. Of women, of women and children, of men or, or boys. So girls do not in, go out and actually play out the rape and the abuse that the men do. And do you think that that's because they're objectifying themselves? Absolutely, right? That's the first thing. So with this, we know, comes decreased levels of self-esteem, increased levels of anxiety, depression, more likely to be sexually abused because your boundaries have been kind of confused by the porn industry. You're more likely to drop out of school. All the things, actually, what's very interesting, if you look at the effects of this, it's very similar to the effects of being raped. Right? They have the same symptoms mm -hmm. and results of being raped. So we know that girls' self-esteem goes down as they reach puberty. And of course, the reason for this is they're internalizing the images of femininity that have been developed in a hypersexualized porn culture. And that there's only one way to be female. That's large breasted, thin, skin toned, preferably white, if you are, because it's a racist beauty standard. And of course, nobody, not even the women in the pictures live up to that standard because they've been airbrushed and um, technological. Photoshopped. Yeah, uh, everything. Yeah. It's, it, it's even more than Photoshop today, what they do to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I know. The women have also had like surgeries done, plumping done in certain places. To, exactly. um Yeah. Yes. So it's not even the things that they're seeing in porn that they're like, oh, this is a video. This is real. A lot of the women have actually had multiple surgeries to achieve the look that they. Yeah. And lady plastic, they want. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, because they see the women's labia all the time, and a lot of women in porn are forced to have these operations so they're perfectly symmetrical. Um, girls and women are now. This mm -hmm. is one of the fastest-growing plastic surgeries in the country. So, I mean, you're basically being mutilated. I mean, any, I think any doctor who does this for cosmetic reasons should have their license removed immediately because it's, it's genital mutilation, Right? And the first order of medicine is do no harm. And here you are doing considerable harm. So, yes, and then they internalise what they should look like, how they should behave. They internalise the fact that they exist only for men. 
And if they don't get the male gaze at them, um, and again, as I say in my classes to my students, and you hear a gasp, is um, in our society, women are split into two. You're either fuckable or invisible. It's not a choice. When right. you've only got two, and one is fuckability, where you have to look like a porn star, then, and what happens after my lectures is that often I get a group of girls and boys, but especially girls lining up crying. And I'm hearing terrible stories of rape and abuse. And then many stories of, I chose fuckability and I hate it, but I don't be alone. Yep. And then I hear other women crying saying, I chose invisibility because I just can't do fuckability. It's not me, but I'm alone all the time. So, I mean, we, we have done such damage not to our girls and to our boys and to the younger generation. You know, pornography is a public health crisis. It's got to be seen as such. Yeah. And the problem that I see with the the choice of fuckability or invisibility that you mentioned is that either one that you choose, you are alone. You're alone. You're alone if you choose fuckability and then you get together with partners that only see you as yeah. objects and never can get to a deep place of authenticity and vulnerability you're going to be living your life alone with that person that's a great point that's a great point that is that's a critical and it's painful absolutely right yeah you know and it's even worse in the young the younger kids because they don't have partners they have hookups right barely know the name of the guy and my students would, and they they said, you know, that's how you have sex today, through a hookup. And they they coined this term, a hookup hangover. You wake up next day and you've got a hangover because you can't stand what you've done, but you've gone and done it. And I heard this incredible story. So they say, if they decide they don't want to have a hookup, right? And this, by the way, came after a discussion where they said they're all empowered, mm -hmm. okay, sexually. And then they tell me if they decide not to have a hookup, the only way they can ensure they don't have a hookup is they don't shave their pubic hair. Because that way, right, they won't have a hookup because the guys will be disgusted because they're not used to seeing pubic hair. So I said, so you're telling me that you need to do something to ensure it beforehand because in the moment you can't say no. And they said, absolutely. I said, well, what if you're drunk and you forget that you haven't shaved? And they said, or waxed. They said, there's not enough alcohol in the world to make you forget that. This is how they've internalized the body image. So now, so I said to them, well, just a minute. I'm, I'm really confused here because 10 minutes ago, you were all telling me you're empowered. Yet now you're telling me you have to have an insurance policy to say no in the moment. That's not empowerment. That's being oppressed. Mm -hmm. absolute question if you cannot make a decision and stick to it because you are going to be bullied into doing something you don't want to do that means you're part of an oppressed group you know what would happen at the end of the course was so interesting it was a course called feminist theories and we dealt a lot with violence against women pornography i swear my students would look like they've grown six inches my women students the, the sense of self that you would see radiate what a privilege it was to teach this and watch my students come in. And I used to think on the first day of class, you have no idea what's going to happen to you and it's going to be the best thing in your life. And at the, at the end of the course, every, virtually every end of the course, there would be, everyone would be crying, all the students, what are we going to do? How are we going to manage without coming here twice a week? I can't imagine living in the world without coming. Because it was the place they could come to talk about how they felt. 
They felt silenced everywhere else. And you know what porn does? What's so remarkable is the porn industry's uh, lobbying arm is called the Free Speech Coalition. Mm. What a hideous name. Because what porn does is it destroys free speech, totally destroys speech. It is this massive industry that defines what speech should be about when it comes to sexuality. And it's moved on to basically it's about violence, not sexuality. I'd like to talk a little bit about grooming because you talked uh, literally about grooming and the women who, uh, when they decide that they don't want to have a hookup that night, they decide not to shave themselves because it'll be a turnoff for the men who are so used to seeing that in porn. And, um, you know, of course, like the ideal body changes from time to time. And so, you know, it went from like, oh, everything has to be waxed to now, like, it's okay to be hairy. And like, that's the ideal apparently in porn land. I haven't looked at porn in a very long time, so I don't know, but I have looked at porn in the nineties, but I think a lot of people don't understand the idea of grooming. There's grooming that actually happens in like a psychological way. And then there's the actual like physical way that that it presents itself in men wanting us to groom our bodies in a particular way. But there, first, first, there is the grooming that takes place of the girls within this porn culture. Can you talk a little bit about that type of grooming? So there's a split it, split it into micro and macro grooming. So micro grooming is when an individual boy or man, sometimes a woman, but very rarely, grooms a kid or a woman or a man into seeing themselves as sex objects. That's what grooming is. It's to basically strip away the humanity in that girl's or woman's head and let them think of themselves that you, the only thing that makes you worthy is what you look like. So that's really what grooming is doing. It's getting them ready to be either trafficked or raped or whatever. What we have now, and I, I'm, I'm going to tell you how I found this out. So I was really struggling when I was writing Paul Land with this concept of what was going on, because I was noticing a change in my students, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I, I was actually um, interviewing eight men in prison all of whom were in for downloading child sexual abuse images and then going on to rape a child. And I was talking to them about, they were all porn addicts, by the way, which we know a lot of porn addicts go down the rabbit hole to raping children. And one of them, I mean, they were all unsavory, but this one was particularly unsavory. He was actually showing off how smart he was, and he kept on about grooming his stepdaughter, who was 10, who he then went on to rape. And what he said was, and this, this changed the way, I think, forever. I almost fell off my chair. He said to me, the culture did a lot of the grooming for me. And I thought, oh, my God, that's it. We've got a mass perpetrating culture who is basically getting these girls ready for the boys and men who've used porn. So we now live with a perp culture. So not only the individual groomers, the culture as a whole is grooming these girls into seeing themselves as sex objects. And then I want to give you a quote from a pornographer, Joanna Angel. And she says at one point, she said, the girls today, they seem to come to the set born ready. Now, it's no accident that the pornographer and the sexual abuser is speaking from the same playbook. 
And what she means here by coming to the set porn ready is not that they're all going to end up on a set, but that girls are being groomed to be porn ready, whether they ever end up on a set or not. So this is what the culture is doing. It is grooming them. And when you groom somebody, you actually destroy them. You destroy their full humanity because what you do is you rip away all that is important in them, who they are, their personality, their humour, um, their intelligence, their physicality, everything that's important to what goes to define, you know, the wonderful human beings that we are. And you strip it away piece by piece. So what's left is nothing but seeing yourself as a sexual being. Well, not even a sexual being, a fuckable being. Let's be honest, this is not, because to be a sexual being is what we all are. Um, you know, we all crave for a loving, warm, intimate sexuality. But this is not what porn can give you. That's, in fact, it's the opposite. Porn, if, I'm surprised, I'm not surprised that anybody ever after seeing porn has sex. You know, we're often accused feminists who are against porn of being anti-sex. If you want to see the most anti-sex imagery, go to porn. They hate sex in porn. They love violence, they love degradation, they love debasement, but they hate sex. Because what is the most obscene thing in porn? The thing that you can't do. Kissing. Why? Because kissing is intimacy. Why would you kiss a fuck object? You wouldn't. You fuck up. Is that really a thing that there's no kissing? No. Very, very rarely is there any kissing. Very rarely. In fact, I can't remember the last time I saw it. You have to go, I think, to specialist websites. You don't go to Pornhub or, or where most people go, Pornhub, YouPorn, you know, um, all of those. Most people go to the free porn sites and that only has hardcore on it. That's what people don't know who've not um, looked at porn. And that's the thing that often shocks them when we're giving lectures at Culture Reframed is that forget Playboy and Penthouse. I mean, that's a joke. That's in Cosmopolitan today, right? What we have now on the porn sites is just shifted overnight in 2000 to hardcore porn. This is what we get them ready for. And these guys seek novelty. They get bored very quickly. Right. So they always have to up the ante. That's what they do in pornography. They're always upping the ante. Some new niche market, some new bizarre sexuality. You know, we were talking about waxing. Do you know there's even a niche porn market for women with pubic hair? That's a niche porn. Yeah. How insane is that? that natural women's bodies would become a niche market. It's it's ridiculous, but um, I don't find it as offensive as other niche things in the porn industry, like um, revenge porn. I find that really horrifying, but honestly. Would you not say, in a way, if you get out of the individual and go to the sort of more wouldn't you say all porn is revenge against all women yeah that's true i think that the the issue that i have with the revenge porn is that they are yeah. using images they're stealing images of women without their consent that's the situation it's without their consent and it's not even necessarily women it's girls yeah, it's true girls they're stealing photos sexting images whatever it is without these people's consent and sharing them online and you know it sometimes it's a photo sometimes it's a video and they're even like selling them yes. and you never the people whose images have been stolen never know where they're going to wind up 
and they have no control over it. That's the fear. That's the fear. But let, let me say one thing. I completely agree with you because it's so purposely done and so carefully done is to really get to her, right? To really ridicule her. Right. But um, the women in pornography don't really consent, right? They're often turned into drug addicts by their pimp, so they're fed drugs. Um, they're often poor. They've been sexually abused. They don't really... They might sign a contract, but they don't really... Because they don't know what's going to happen to them. They don't... You're 18 years old. You've been told by the culture that you should be fuckable. Your boyfriend tells you you're really hot and should do this. You've got no idea at 18. Your brain isn't even fully formed. The adult brain doesn't come online until between 26 and 30. So you're really a kid when you look at the brain. So what what Mm -hmm. does an 18-year-old know? How can they project 10 years on when they're maybe partnered or they've got children? and They live in fear. Women in pornography live in the same fear when they leave the industry. The next door neighbor, their boss, their good friends, who'll see it. So in that way, all women ever, and I've spoken to many, many and worked with many women who exit the porn industry, and they won't go public. You know, women who exit trafficking have formed fantastic organizations to stop trafficking. Not the same with pornography, because they feel so exposed because their images, their images will live longer than they will. Right? They'll be long dead. Yeah and their images will live on. And I have to say, I was interviewing a woman who actually was probably the only woman I've ever interviewed who left porn who did not have PTSD, right? She didn't have post-traumatic stress disorder. And she left with some money to start a business, which is unheard of. Right. So we're on the phone for two hours, and I'm thinking, this is amazing, right? This woman is stunning with her capacity to have lived through this But then she says, the last thing she said to me, she says, I just want to say one thing before we say goodbye. She said, if somebody offered me a year to live and said, I would take down every image of you, she says, I would die happy knowing all my porn images of God. Wow. Mm. And here was a woman, let me tell you, that showed no signs of PTSD, but even she was haunted by the images out there. Yeah. And that makes sense. I uh, did an interview with Haley McNamara, the VP of the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. And when we were having our conversation, we ended up talking about privilege versus like not privilege in the porn industry with the women who are participants in porn and how the majority of women in porn are low income. They are struggling. They are coming to porn out of hardship and desperation and or being forced into the industry. And there's only a small amount because a lot of, you know, what I've heard from my haters is the women who are in porn make that choice themselves. It's their decision to go into porn and show themselves in that way. And so when we were talking, we were saying that there's actually a small amount of women that are in it because they feel so strongly about it and so empowered. And it's really like the privileged section i don't even think they exist you know what speak to them a few years after they leave the industry really when you when you're in the sex industry whether you're being prostituted whether pornography which is really prostitution with the camera going when you're in it your body is being so violated day in day out that if you acknowledge that I am doing this and I am being a br- brutalized every day, you will have a psychotic break. You can't do it while you're in the industry. So you have to wait till these women are out and have had time to process what's gone on. And the best advice I heard is you never speak 
or talk to anyone who's been out of the industry for at least three years because it takes that long with mm. therapy to process what's happened to your body. I mean, the violation is, I mean, I when I look at porn and I watch these women, I think I would die. I would die. If that happened to me just once, forget that I'd have to get up the next day and the next day and the next day and do the same. Just once, I don't think I would ever get up off the floor. I don't know how I would live in my body after that happened. So these women are incredibly strong and courageous that they can withstand this. But you can't ask them why they're in the industry to deal with the violence that's happening to them. You know, so I don't believe for a second that even if they think they're going in empowered, believe me, by the time they come out, they have been destroyed emotionally and physically. And but it doesn't mean forever. I know many incredible women who've been in the industry who have really and those who aren't and haven't managed to get through it are still incredible women that they can do this. I mean, you know, we don't want to turn them. They are victims of an industry, but they also have a strength that I don't have because I would never get up off that floor after that. Never. Yeah, I think that that's really important for our listeners to hear because. I know that there are a lot of women that really think that there's a choice there and that the women who are in this industry are just doing it because they enjoy it. They're enjoying making money that way. They're enjoying they don't make money. being able to show off their bodies. They're enjoying, um, you know, like, yeah, having these partners and being so sexy. I think that that's what the bottom line comes down to is that they think that the women who are in this industry and choose to be, you know, famous for it are really getting to enjoy their sexiest selves. Well, let me say, there's no, there's about five porn stars in the world. The rest are women who are in and out of the porn industry within three to five months because their bodies can't tolerate what's happening to it. They don't look sexy by the time that porn scene is over. They look like they've been run over by a truck. And this other thing is, if the porn industry was a choice, then you would see women with PhDs, lawyers, doctors, they're not lining up to go into the porn industry. When you do studies, it's the same over and over again. High proportion of women of colour, because race and poverty go together. High proportion of women who've been sexually abused. High proportion, mainly women who are being pimped out. You know, if when I see women with degrees from Harvard and Yale lining up saying, me, 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 I want to be in porn, then we can argue, yes, maybe it is empowering. But at this moment, you know, we don't argue that working in a sweatshop is empowering. We understand that when you have no choice, you go to do whatever you can. And you know what? As a mother, I would do anything to put food on the table for my kid. If I didn't have money to feed, feed my kid and had no other way, I would do it. Absolutely. And many women go in there to feed their kids. Um, I've seen mm -hmm. on OnlyFans where you have a wish list of what you right. want these guys to buy you. Diapers. Diapers. Right? If they've got kids, they need diapers. Wow. And I understand for women whose husbands have become porn addicted, or and sex addiction is often linked to going to prostituted women. I understand you must just hate all these women on a visceral right. level. Look what they've because it's a way to blame them. Because there's only so much hate you can have for your partner and still live with them. So I think let's be very clear, this is not the women's fault. Right? If we want to put shame and blame on anyone, the first shame and blame should go on the porn industry. The second shame and blame should go on our culture and our politicians who have let this yes. run wild. It's like the Wild West out there 
on the internet with pornography? Where is there a government with backbone to do something that anyone, anywhere can access images of women being tortured? So this, if you want to shame and blame, I've got a whole list of people you shame and blame before you get to women. Yeah. And I think that that is a really great way to end this conversation where we talk about shifting the blame. Because the blame shouldn't be on these women who are put in a position of needing to survive and to, you know, be able to pay for their families. And it it's really on the patriarchy because that okay. is the whole structure that built this machine of objectification and sexuality. And the unfortunate part is that it affects all women. Like I, I really think that some women think that they're not affected by porn and it really affects all women in all different stratas of the um, education sphere of the everything. And so if we all could get together and shift the blame and, and look at, you know, the politics behind this and look at, you know, the men behind this, look at anyone who has control over this, the big businesses, the, you know, that are profiting from this and really start pointing fingers and say, you know, if we could band together and, and in some powerful way, make a change to that, to like, but it's so it's just it feels almost to me like impossible because uh, the machine is just like run by men. And so the only people you're you're talking to the men and they're like, yeah, that's a problem, but we don't care because we're actually watching the porn. So let's just go, you know, look over here instead. It's just do you have any advice? Yes, I do. I have plenty of advice. First of all, this is a country that banished slavery. Now, if you look at the, how slavery was in every single institution, think of that first African-American who thought this can't continue enough. We have to band together. Now, it looked like the most impossible of struggles because the legal industry was set up to defend slave owners. The whole economic system was set up, every single system. Now, I believe with every inch, first of all, that women are what make this is what makes this country worth living. It makes the world worth living in. We have banded together before to get rid of, um, to make sure we have more equal equality, that we protect our girls. So let me say why we started Culture Reframe. We started Culture Reframe so we can band together. We have to. We have to save ourselves, but more importantly, we have to save the next generation of children. We cannot hand them over to the porn industry. So a couple of things I would suggest. Go on culturereframe.org. We have great programs which talk about the harms of pornography. So go and take our programs, they're free. Also, um, look around at our resources, look at our videos that many of us have made. We are an organisation dedicated to building the resilience and resistance in kids and also stopping the harms of pornography. And that means regulate the hell out of the porn industry. Regulate it to the point that it becomes almost impossible to produce and consume. Because you can't use the word ban. It doesn't make any sense today, mm. given the internet, right? You have to tie it down like Gulliver's strategy with regulation. So really, it's just so cumbersome to make and to buy, you don't bother. 
and we are working on certain acts and certain legislation in this country and with other countries to do that. I also would like to give a plug that we are a non-profit, which means we're always looking for donations. So if you feel that you'd like to donate to our work, because the problem with this is that we are ahead of our time. It's only just beginning to explode. So when we go to donors and talk about pornography, it's not like we're going to talk about drinking and driving or drugs. People know those as public health issues. They don't know at this point that pornography is a public health issue. So we have to do the whole explaining. And it, it seems to me your listeners probably do get that this is. And I have to say... I do many, many interviews all the time. You are a fabulous interviewer. <laughs> the questions you have asked me, honestly, the questions you have asked me, the knowledge that you bring to this, I mean, because maybe this was your lifesaver, I don't know, of getting to understand the yeah. issue. But I have very rarely been interviewed by anybody who has the depth of knowledge of this subject that you have. So I want you to know that, and I want your listeners to know that, because normally... I'm like having to feed the interview into the direction, not with you. I mean, you you ran this in a way that was wonderful and it gave me the space to talk about what I wanted to talk about. And I think every woman out there who has suffered porn betrayal, which is what it is, a deep level of betrayal, needs to pick themselves up, which some of many have, and start educating themselves, really, because otherwise you're not going to know what to do with yourself. You are really not going to know what to do with yourself. The level of betrayal feels so profound. But I know so many women who have gotten up, dusted themselves off and gone on to live incredible lives. And one of the things knowledge is, you want to talk about empowerment? Knowledge is the key to empowerment. So knowing what you know, I'm sure, has been a lifesaver for you to understand it. And to sort of realise that, in a way, your husband was kind of pulled into pornography. Yeah. Right? It was It was not just, just there waiting for him. All the algorithms, all mm. the ways that the culture fed it to, you know, and it's considered a joke. Porn is the punchline of a joke, except it's not funny. There's nothing funny in pornography. There's It lays waste to our culture, and we have to stop that. So thank you for giving me the space as well to talk. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. And I, I really hope that we can continue this conversation in some other place because I it's such a huge topic and there's just so much to cover. Thanks again. And I wish you all the best of luck. And to my listeners, please, please donate to Culture Reframed. On next Giving Tuesday, you know where to put the money. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of I Am My Passion Project. New episodes drop every Friday. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing with a friend or two or more or leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I hope you're able to move through your week speaking your own truth and embracing your badass self. I am my passion project.